Flight Guys Turkey, coming to you weekly from Istanbul. Your smart guide to the state of Turkey. Welcome to Zeitgeist Turkey. This is Cansu Çamlıbay. We are coming to you from Istanbul with my podcast partner Can Selçuki. And today we have a special guest. My dear friend and colleague Aslı Aydın Taşbaş is joining us from her house in Istanbul. Aslı, welcome to our show. Hi Cansu, it's great to be here. I've been a fan of your podcast, so now I get to feature in one. Thank you both of you. It's fantastic to have you with us. I know you've been <laughs> shuttling between online meetings since the pandemic uh, took over our lives. Instead of this hectic traveling, now there is this hectic Zooming or whatever other uh, virtual medium that you're using. Uh, and a few extra kilos uh, to go with that because we're sitting <laughs> on, a, on a desk every day staring at a computer. Are you happy with this new normal? I think I was happier in the first round last year, March, April, like everybody else. I was enjoying online classes and trying to do a bit of meditation and meeting friends online and all now, of course not. All of that is no longer interesting. We're we're going to be stuck for a long winter. I am trying not to get too depressed. John, uh Hello to you, by the way. Sorry. Um, hi, Jansu. Hi, Asla. I, I, I kind of jumped into welcoming Asla right away. But you and I, we talk more often. So sure. I know your feelings about these half lockdowns. And you are kind of a brave heart. So you still do travel, <laughs> as far as I know. At least domestic travel. I drive now, Jansu, which is not an activity that I like. Uh, but uh, I drive much more than I used to. I don't take planes. So... I'm sure uh, most of our audience, they are familiar with uh, with her name. She's an important voice uh, for Turkey Watchers. For those who would be discovering Aslı today through this conversation, let me briefly introduce her. She's currently holding a role as the senior fellow, uh, as the senior Turkey fellow of the European think tank, European Council on Foreign Relations, ECFR. And she is a columnist uh, for the leading US daily, Washington Post. And she is definitely a go-to person for foreigners, expats, journalists for living in Turkey. And her views often appear in noble publications in the West. And of course, first and foremost, she's a journalist. She's a colleague of mine. However, she's not been doing active journalism in Turkey for a while now. I think we can go into the details of why she chose to have this break from Turkish media and talk about this for hours, probably as we did so many times in the past. But the primary reason to invite her today was to pick her brains on the course of Turkey's relations with Europe and with the West in general. So Jan, before I invite Aslı to dive into the layers of this problematic relationship of Turkey with the West, could you please quickly, as an economist, tell us what the recent interest rates decision of President Erdogan means for Turkey? Thank you, John. So I think this uh, interest rate hike was uh, much expected. You know, it was 475 basis points, well within the expectation of the markets, domestic and foreign. This decision was taken to actually signal and tell everyone that the government is serious about, you know, following a rational economic policy. 
Now, this is one of the many steps that need to be taken. Let's say this is the first signal since the appointing, appointment of the new central bank governor and replacement of the finance and treasury minister. This is a good sign, I have to say, but we will have to wait and see if this is accompanied by you know, sound economic management to restore trust and turn around the Turkish economy. It's too early to call, but it's a, it's a move in the right direction. Can you also remind us why the president resisted to go ahead with this move for such a long time before? Well, Mr. Erdogan has his own convictions about economic policy and for a long time, you know, his way of explaining the relationship between interest rate and the inflation has been rather, uh, you know, counter uh, theory, let's say, uh, in terms of which affects which. And for this reason, for a while, he has been a very staunch opposer of uh, interest rates uh, increase. Now, from statements that he made as late as, you know, few hours before the central bank's decision to increase rates, he still said that, you know, quoting, we should not suffocate the investors uh, with, uh, you know, high interest rates. His conviction seems to continue, but this time around, he's leaving more room for the central bank to operate independently. We will have to see, obviously, uh, how much this room he leaves for rational economic policy management continue as things will inevitably get tougher for the common Turkish household. Right. So, Jan, this was almost like one of the last resorts for Erdogan, and he inevitably had to go there. Just to continue from where John left, yes, this is a good first step, no doubt. And it's a good idea that there are signals that the government wants to go back to a more rational, orthodox management of the economy, not fight the markets, not come up with funny theories about interest rates, but go with the expected norms. This is all good. Certainly, Nadia Abal is a good name as the head of central bank, as is Lutfi Elvan. But this is not enough. You do need a political story with it. Part of the problem has always been personal management of the economy, consolidation of power, the loss of independence of financial institutions, including the central bank, but also stock markets, other institutions, and and sort of the, the lack of confidence for the investors, including Turkey's own citizens who are keeping their money, not in Turkish lira, but the bulk of it in dollars. So it's a good idea to sort of give this as a first signal that the government is going to return to an orthodox understanding of the economy, but it has to be backed by political reforms because Turkey is a country that that has enormous external financing needs and money is just not going to come to this country if there is still this personalized rule, illiberalism, uh, sort of a random erratic decision making. Markets want certainty. They want a rules-based order. Turkey can return to a rules-based order, but not can't do that only in the management of the economy. It has to be backed by political reforms. And uh, I think that there is an awareness whether he can do it or not is something else. But it's no coincidence that we have this replacement last week alongside a new rhetoric from the government talking about political reform. There's no action yet. I think we're all waiting, but there hopefully there's an understanding that without any reform within the system, you know, today you raise interest markets, tomorrow you sack this guy, so nothing would change. 
there has to be a return to a rules-based order. We've been talking about the interest rates. We've been talking about the dynamics for economy. And obviously, this is very important to tell the Western investors that Turkey is not a North Korea. But on the other hand, even if there is a positive message today now trying to be sent outside Turkey, why would they trust the Turkish judicial system while someone like Osman Kavala is still in jail? Well, Jansu, beggars can't be choosers. And we are beggars for democracy at this point as people living in Turkey. You're right, there are signals coming from the government indicating that they are interested. There's shy signals. It's not like, you know, there's been any action or any release. I mean, we're really reading tea leaves here. We know that Minister of Justice has talked about reform. He said, whatever the cost is, in a very striking sentence. And then President Erdogan has said they are preparing a human rights action plan. I think the good news is that someone somewhere understands that this is not sustainable. You can't be running the economy like this as if it's a bakal shop, as if it's a deli. And then you can't simultaneously pursue an illiberal path and expect to be elected. So something's got to give. Either you pivot to democracy or at least uh, some sort of a rule of law system, or you understand that you may not be reelected. So there is an understanding of that. Of course, it's possible. Erdogan is a pragmatist. He has made U-turns in the past. He's had alliances and dropped his partners and then, you know, switched alliance partners, etc. I'm heartened by the fact that I think on some level, people understand that it's not sustainable. What I worry about is two things. I think there's no way he can convince his ultranationalist coalition partner, MHP, into a reform agenda. So that relationship will have to end, and that's not going to be an easy thing for AKP because MHP has made such inroads within the Turkish system and bureaucracy. I think that uh, this divorce will be a whole lot more painful than people imagine. Secondly, Erdogan may think on some level instinctively that he needs to reform. The question is, can he do it? Does he have the cadres that are capable of pulling it and organizing it? Can he live through with the consequences, which will have to involve, you know, more power to the parliament, more of a respect for independent judiciary, independent institutions, etc.? I mean, it's fine to say you want reform, but when it comes to allowing judges and prosecutors to act with their conscience and allow political prisoners and actually carry out legislative change which would allow somebody like Osman Kavala to come out of jail, is he able to go through that whole process? So these are the two questions. But the first big question is MHP, and we're already getting a sense of a fallout within the governing coalition. It's not clear, but there is a fight that's very clear. That's very clear from Bahçeli's tweets, Devlet Bahçeli being, being the MHP leader, that's very clear from the threats that are coming from a sort of a mafia leader, if I can use that term, against the CHP leader. It's, it's just very clear that there's a fight within the governing coalition. This is a perception that is now being widely discussed. The mafia leader that you're talking about, Alaaddin Çakıcı, and uh, his open threats to the main opposition CHP leader, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, on social platforms, 
was that indeed it aimed at sabotaging and maybe harming or destroying this reform rhetoric of President Erdogan. Do you tend to kind of agree with that assumption? That I have no doubt that the actual address is the president himself. It is intended exactly to give that message. We don't like this whole reform business. And he mentions, he sent out three very striking tweets yesterday. One of these specifically talks about Osman Kavala releasing, pro-Soros Osman Kavala, really accusing yeah. Kılıç Daroğlu, but actually, actually accusing President Erdogan of possibly taking a more lenient line on Kavala, Demirtas, etc. He's basically laying down the red lines. Yeah. And Kavala's release is very important, not because he's in jail because of trumped up charges, but he has become such a symbol for the West as well, for Europe, for sure, but also increasingly for U.S. Congress and global public opinion that, you know, he's a civil society leader. Any attempt to change the course and pivot back to democracy would have to start with Kavala. And I think Bahçeli has just laid out the red line that that's a no-go for us. Jan, I would like to turn to you and um, something very striking Asla said. If I'm not mistaken, she said that this alliance between AKP and MHP will have to end if President Erdogan is really honest and candid about his intentions for reform. Can he do that? What is the state of MHP and AKP alliance at this point? What do the numbers suggest to you? So, John, so let's begin with the numbers. From our November political polling, for the first time, we've seen that the People's Alliance of AK Party and MHP are at 47%, while the block against the People's Alliance is at 53%. So the balance has shifted in favor of the opposition block, let's say. Now, Mr. Erdogan is in need of votes that will carry him over 50% to 50.1% to get re-elected as president. Now, for that, his initial plan was to ally with the MHP. However, it seems like the sum of this alliance is no longer enough. He needs uh, a fresh source of votes for that. And that's the reason why we are seeing this uh, reform rhetoric uh, to begin with. But I agree with Asli. I mean, to the extent that he needs to go to convince everyone that this reform rhetoric is indeed is meant to be, it means crossing a lot of red lines uh, for the MHP because soon enough, soon enough, you know, we will start again talking about Selatin Demirtas' imprisonment, right? And the, the nationalistic mood in the country has been building up so strongly ever since the failed coup attempt of July 15th that it's very difficult, even for Mr. Erdogan, to make the case against what he has been preaching for the past five years, let's say. So yes, he does find himself, I think, in a rather difficult uh, predicament. He needs additional votes to go beyond uh, the 50%. However, his current alliance puts him, corners him in a very rigid policy area. Now, if he wants to get out of that policy area, he can but he will have to let go of MHP. But the problem is, I don't think he would have a problem in doing that either, but the problem is it's not a foregone conclusion that even if he chooses to do that, he might recover the votes that have been flowing in other direction. So he's in a rather uh, tough situation here. In the meantime, 
Aslı. There is expectation from the European side. Uh, Germany has been brokering some kind of understanding between Turkey and Greece so that this tension that we witnessed last summer in the East Med and Aegean is kind of under control. But there is an important meeting in December. European heads of states, they are meeting. And as far as I understand, if uh, Ankara doesn't back down from a current position on these uh, drilling activities, if you might be faced with a new sanctions package. Is that where we are? Yes, I think we will probably be faced with a new sanctions package because I don't really see much of a chance for a huge shift in Turkish policy. But as you mentioned, Germany has been mediating and mediating very effectively. Basically, the divisions within Europe are very clear and Germany, taking a very realist approach, was able to say to France and others who called for more punitive measures, wait a minute, let me deal with this. I would like to negotiate with President Erdogan, Merkel said. And she said there's a, she basically has gone out of her way in, in brokering a deal. And the 1st of October, EU Council decisions welcome Turkey's decision to pull back its exploration ship or trace and talked about a positive agenda with Turkey. But lo and behold, for reasons I haven't quite figured out, President Erdogan, even though he had actually reached a deal with America over a very intense foreign diplomacy, decided to send back the exploration ship. And I think a second one, Kanuni, is also in the area. Now, of course, this puts Germany in a difficult place because Germans want to push back against France and other countries that want more punitive measures, but they need to have something to show for. At this point, because Turkey has decided to send its exploration ships back, I think sanctions are unavoidable. But I happen to think they won't be crippling. And I've seen talk of, uh, you know, getting rid of customs union agreement with, I don't really see that kind of punitive measures happening. It would probably be more in the category of toothless sanctions, that is to say, possibly sanctions on Turkish officials that we don't know of, energy officials or from Turkish petroleum. But I can't imagine that there will be much of an appetite for a very heavy set of sanctions. I don't know. These things change very frequently, but it is a challenge for Europe and for Turkey. At some point, Europe needs a grand bargain with Turkey, a bargain which includes Cyprus, which includes hydrocarbon reserves, which includes other things, including perhaps a sort of format for Turkey's relationship with Europe. But we're not there yet. The 1st of October, when there was talk of a positive agenda with Turkey, I was very happy that this laid the groundwork for new set of negotiations that could begin about customs union modernization, etc. But it, we're not there. We, it's, it's back to uh, where we were two months ago. Certainly, when we talk about sanctions, it's not only the EU sanctions that Turkey is facing right now. Turkey will be probably in bigger trouble if, not if, probably when at this point, the Biden administration will have to impose the sanctions that has been sitting on U.S. president's desk for a long time now. What is the talk in the European circles with Joe Biden, uh, president-elect, and uh, he's setting out a different agenda for the transatlantic alliance? It will probably be a period for reset and restoration of this relationship after four years of Trump ignoring the importance of this relationship. So Europe and United States, are they going to sync in terms of dealing with Turkey, what is your guess? 
Well, that's a hard one. I worry that Europe will change course if they see tough measures from the U.S. and vice versa. You're right, and you and I have talked about this often, also privately, that you know the S-400 issue has not gone away. President Trump has provided a certain immunity to Turkey, basically pushing back against demands and calls from Congress for sanctions on Turkey, but he's gone now. We're left still with a sort of an angry Congress that wants punitive measures against Turkey. I think people were extremely happy in Ankara about Donald Trump and his relationship with Erdogan. And uh, you and I were pulling out our hair thinking personal phone diplomacy only goes so far. You really need to fix the institutional framework. The fact that Congress has such a bad relationship with Turkey, the fact that institutional ties have weakened so much are all problems. And we've already seen Turkey excluded from F-35 program, which is a huge, huge, huge price to pay, if you ask me, both financially and in terms of Turkey's security. Trump was taking President Erdogan's holes and really flattering him when they met one-on-one, but I fail to see what good that has done to to Turkey. And in any case, Trump is leaving. So you're left with an angry Congress and a Biden administration that feels they have to work with Congress. They will have a small lead uh, within the House of Representatives and possibly no majority in Senate. So that means they really do have to work with Congress. And I think Turkish-American relationship, yes, there is need for a reset, but we might be going through a more turbulent period before we get to a talk of a reset. I mean, this is a fact unfortunately and this fact is not going to go away and was not going to go away even if President Trump had had won a, a second term. What do you think Ankara and President Erdogan's team need to do at this point? Is it fixable in the first place? You know the traditional Turkey backers in U.S. Congress were defense companies mm-hmm. who sold weapons and of course the decision to carry out a major purchase from Russia, that relationship seems to have changed because, uh, you know, it's called a military industrial complex. There is there is a certain, it has a certain amount of, of power over U.S. Congress and they seem to, you know, see S-400s as a very important symbol or threshold. So I worry about this situation because I think for the longest time, Turkey President Erdogan thought he could make it go away with a phone call to Trump. And U.S. does not really work like Turkey. That's number one. Secondly, American sense of time is different. Policies change, but it takes uh, it takes time for these policies to change. So we've already seen like small incidents, change in U.S. policy in Eastern Mediterranean, changes in the decades-long policy of balance between Turkey and Greece in East Med, weapons sales to, you know, lifting the embargo on Cyprus, starting opening new bases in Greece. Uh, again, you know, F-35, Turkey being excluded, you know, two bases, uh, one in Crete, one in across the border from Turkey, Alexandropoli, that is opening up. I mean, these are all very significant moves that happened under Trump administration. While Trump was talking to President Erdogan and, you know, flattering him and saying nice things. So U.S. policy was already changing. Turkey has 
an opportunity, I think, for a reset. But it has to be very much of a realist. Americans also have to be realistic that there is a new Turkey that will want to pursue independent policies. It's not going to be, they have to understand that there is this country uh, with or without Erdogan wants to have independent policies and wants to be a power in its own region and all of that. But I think we have to get over fundamental issues. One of these is S-400s. Another one is the situation in Turkey. I think the domestic situation, there has to be, there will be more focus on human rights and democracy. The United States is never going to act like Amnesty International. Let's not kid ourselves. And it should not, in my view. And it should not. But one of the things Biden administration trying to differentiate itself from Trump is a return to liberal value, liberal norms, liberal order, and of course, a democracy, more of a narrative on democracy. I think, you know, whether they'll enforce it or not is something else, but we are going to see more of a praise for democracies. There is talk of establishing a league of democracies, some type of a new G20 for democratic countries where Saudi Arabia will be excluded, other China will be excluded. You know, it would be a big blow to Turkey, I think, if they end up being excluded from this mechanism because I don't know if it's achievable or not, but the talk is that this mechanism will have some functionality like tech transfer and things like that. So human rights and democracy will also be part of the bilateral conversation. It won't be the top item, that's for sure, but it will be top. So there is a need to rethink what a reset is going to be, how these two countries are going to work around each other's differences. There will be issues where they have a different stance. I don't think Americans will change their position on Syrian Kurds, and I don't really know if Turkey will change its position on Syrian Kurds. So, you know, how is it, how do they work out a situation in which they agree to disagree in the way that Turkey and Russia does. Like Turkey and Turkish-Russian relationship is all about creating an alliance in situations where there's big disagreements. But Turkey can't do this with Europe or United States. And, you know, I, I hope that someone starts questioning why and how. But I would like to come back to what you said about this possible new gathering, um, new mechanism of a league of democracies. I would be intrigued to see how President Erdogan would navigate this country if there is a search for, for that kind of framework in Western democracies. And at the time, social media and the big social media companies like Twitter, Facebook, YouTube are blocked in Turkey. Good question. Really, he should answer this question. I, 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 I agree with you. It's tough. And I think it's also running against social demands. I mean, what the prospect of banning social media companies from Turkey is crazy. It's crazy on so many different levels, but also because this society will just re- not take it. You know, even the AKP base is, is fully in social media and the world has changed. It's 21st century. You know, there has to be some, some normalcy, some normalization going on in this space. With leaders, after they've been in power for a long time, there's a certain amount of isolation. They may feel somewhat cut off from social trends and particularly, you know, it's been a problem for AKP that they're not doing that well at all among young voters. There are so many problems in Turkey and uh, now with the second uh, peak of the pandemic, the last months of 2020 will not be easy. And hopefully with the opening of the next year, 
uh, will have some kind of positive messages, at least messaging from outside Turkey that will push, push for greater search for freedoms and also bettering of our democracy. This is what we can do. We can only hope and continue to talk about these things. We can only hope and continue to talk. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I, sometimes I'm more pessimistic, other days I'm more optimistic, but you have caught me on an optimistic day. So, you know, because this is a young population, because it's a sophisticated culture, because, you know, we have a big production base. This is a globalized economy, a country with an amazing workforce. So I'm not, into, I'm not hopeless. Yeah, me neither. And uh, I hope maybe in the next months we come together again to assess what's going on and uh, what will happen with President-elect Biden taking office on January 20th. Thank you so much, Aslı, for being with us. Jan and I, we are really glad you made the time to join us today. Thank you. This was a lovely discussion. Thanks to both of you and thank you for having me on. And until next time, try to stay healthy, safe and enjoy home. Bye, Johnson. Goodbye, everyone. Bye.